the 11FS office in WeWork Allgate, London for episode 71 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto maybe meets institutions. Today we bring you Bitcoin turns 10, oh fuck, Bitcoin turns 10, BCH drama and... I still don't know what the fucking Initiative Q is. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Do you really want to know what Initiative Q is? Not really. I, I, I want it to be a mystery forever. Uh, all this and more, right. Um, I'm Simon Taylor, back from Money 2020. I'm ready to take this hot, hot seat again. And I'm reunited with the GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. How are you, sir? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? I, I'm really well. Um, news is, you've escaped the field, you jumped over the fence, you managed to get back in the country, um, they're still believing that you're allowed into countries even despite your love of cards that meow. I, I do quite love cards that meow. Simon. <laughs> you, you know you love them. It's Crypto Kitties with a debit card. Uh, we'll come back to that on a different show at a different time, but we're not alone, are we, Colin? We are not, fortunately. Uh, we're joined by Alex Batlin from Trustology. Alex, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Good to have you on the show. Um, without further ado, let's jump straight in to the first story. Uh, globalcapital.com uh, has their Bite Me section, and they talk about Bitcoin turning 10. So um, Halloween 2008, Bitcoin was born. Uh, it wasn't really traded for a couple of years. It was, uh, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere for a little while. Um, where do we reflect on this? I mean, it's an interesting point in time. Ten years old today. Uh, it's uh, it maybe does it know right from wrong yet? Uh, is it able to do its uh, long division? Like, I think you can put it in jail now officially. Yeah. It's what after eight you can go to jail. Well, yeah, it's a special kind of jail. So it's like young currencies jail. <laughs> I think that's where uh, where they said pitch connect. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Bitcoin's had a bit of a profound effect on how people think about money, Alex. Uh, yeah, it has. I think it's uh, asked people to question what fiat money looks like. Um, if nothing else, I think that's been a, a great achievement in its own right. So what's the future? Because a lot of central banks and the FSB and others have come out and pointed out all the flaws in Bitcoin, all of the reasons why it will never be a thing. Um, and when you compare it to fiat money, it doesn't do the same things as fiat money. It works quite differently. Is there a future for it? I think so. I think just because it's different, it doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, it's also, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to take over uh, financial services like some people said, said it would do. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an additional asset class uh, that has no physical settlement risk uh, and it has no issuer risk. I think that's pretty cool. Explain no physical settlement risk and no issuer risk. Sure. So um, if you have a fiat currency, then somebody has the central control or ability to create more money. Hence, uh, you have... Um, Issuer risk. Yeah, Mishuris. Quantitative easing, we called it, uh, <laughs> back in 2007 when I lost about 30 pence on my pound, which I was told, of course, will be diligently back uh, in 25 years' time because money was never printed. It was simply... Didn't you lose more through Brexit, though? Oh, well, let's, talk about uh, that let's not go there. <laughs> that's another surprise I'm looking forward but to. But actually, that talks about a currency that's also, that, that is a form of issuer risk. 
right? Because actually it's issued by a sovereign state. Therefore, its value is pegged to the creditworthiness of that oh, state. That's a market risk because people, uh, to me, issuer risk is literally the issuer decides to print more. Right. And then there's market risk, which values what has been printed. Okay, yeah, the market says you did a stupid thing, therefore I value you differently. And, um, and Bitcoin is as subject to market risk as any fiat If currency. not more. <laughs> if not more, yeah. And then the second question, physical settlement. Uh, most of the time, kind of a lot of assets are asset-backed by something, mm-hmm. uh, and that something has to be stored somewhere. Um, because Gold needs to exist in a place. Yeah. So even if two countries trade not using dollars but gold bullion, which a lot of BRICs are starting to move towards, one country or another still has to physically store that gold ready for delivery, which yeah. means there's always physical settlement risk. CGP, Bitcoin, um, is it is it uh, taking over the world? It's 2025. There is nothing in the future. We're in, living in a dystopia and there is only two Bitcoins. Well, I think, you know, dystopia now. Yeah. Um, oh, it gave us a reason to have a podcast, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's I think I think the the really interesting thing, and I say this to be kind of snarky, is like Bitcoin launched the same way that every other shitcoin has launched. Like it launched in October 2008. It didn't really appear until a couple months later in January 2009 when the network actually turned on. But nobody really heard about it outside of a very small circle of people that had probably been in digital currencies for the last 20 years before that. Um, the world didn't really kind of acknowledge it until about, what, 2011, 2012, 2013 is kind of when it really started to take off. Um, and what I think is kind of that knock-on effect is, as you say, a lot of people are asking about how money works, but they're also asking about how money moves and, and what that means for everything else on top of it. And that's the blockchain-y stuff. So its legacy is it gets people to really change how they think about how money does move, could move, should move, and sits out there as this working thing that does what it was intended to do, but maybe doesn't, uh, on on some level, it works, um, but it might not have uh, replaced all of the world's currency. Well, true. And also think about it. Nobody actually voted on how uh, how many works. Yeah. Uh, Bretton Woods, a bunch of guys sat in the room and decided that they're going to move our gold standard and create completely opaque to vast majority of people in the world set of rules about how the new money works. They didn't explain it to anybody. They didn't bother asking anybody if they agreed with it. They just did it. There's something interesting about intellectual inclusion there of like, actually, there's this open source project and everybody gets to see in a different way. Because like historically, when the Bank of England decides they're going to move policy, there's a committee and they release the committee notes. But actually, there's this uh, there's the lack of a community movement. And it just feels different, even though in theory, it's all being declared and all the rationale is there for you to read. It feels very different to there's this project. Project and have you heard about this coin and they're working in this way and this is their monetary theory it sort of forced a generation of people to start considering how money works yeah and i think there's an important thing in there it's like everybody talks about there will be 21 million bitcoin when everything plays out in 100 years or so that could change and like we've seen with ethereum they've changed their their issuance schedule two or three times now um it's very well that it could change again in the future if people decide but is that more democratic? Is that more open? Maybe. I think there's more discussion, at least amongst the, the laymen like ourselves, um, rather than the, the people impaneled in, in the Bank of England or anywhere else. But I don't know that people really have – they think they do, but I don't know that they really have any more power to change it. That's an, Yeah, that's a fair point. I, the, I think the – the discussion has moved. The ability to impact the outcome of the discussion may not have. That's an interesting point. But but the other issue, of course, is all of the money supply uh, kind of theories and money uh, rails have been designed at a national level, pre-internet. 
And the problem is, of course, uh, every nation state never trusts any other nation state to maintain its central books and records. Hence, you now have inherently uh, massive reconciliation requirements uh, if you want to do international payments. Bitcoin was the first popular uh, transnational or global Truly rail. Truly global, yeah. yeah. And it has this real in synergy. It's both local because everyone's got a local copy. So... Um, even if you have an, an argument with another nation state, your records don't disappear. At the same time, it's auto-synchronized. So it's the very first rails, in my opinion, that's actually been born post-internet and for the global internet age. Uh, and that's the transformation for me. That's, that's a pretty powerful point. Uh, we've got to move on, though, because um, Bitcoin returning 10 uh, is not where we find ourselves 10 years later. The big conversation at the moment is about the institutionalization of cryptocurrency. And uh, Jackson Palmer, who's uh, the famous creator of Dogecoin, uh, talks in DR.co about why the institutionalization of cryptocurrency is a paradox. He writes, if you stay up to date with the cryptocurrency news cycle, a recent trend you may have observed is the widespread excitement at the the prospect of large traditional financial institutions entering the space. We've seen a wave of institutional news lately. Many cryptocurrency enthusiasts express blind enthusiasm at the notion of positive price impact associated with this money flowing in. Uh, where's this wave of money? Everybody wants to get rich. I've been hearing that this wave of money is just around the corner for the last three or four years now. Is, is, it, is there a wave of money, oh, Alex? Where's the wave of money? <laughs> <laughs> Looking for it, too. Um, no, look, I, I, I think it's... I don't think we should care about it. Honestly, I don't. Because if forever you're looking at uh, kind of injecting old money into new money, you, you're always playing a dependency game. For me, this is just a very logical extension as to how we should be doing stuff post-internet age. And therefore, I'm actually busy building the future rails. This isn't about a kind of one-upmanship. This isn't about slating somebody else. This, to me, just feels like a naturally superior for the new environment, which is post-internet age uh, financial services. So we're going to build it. And I think we're already seeing new issuance of new, even traditional asset classes being done as digital assets rather than... Well, that's a different point, isn't it? Because I, I think the institutionalization of cryptocurrency or crypto assets is, is quite different to an asset being made truly digital. So, and and those are two separate points. Like if I was to treat an asset in this post-internet age and I was to say uh, a house, a mortgage to the house, the the car, the key to the car, the deeds to the car, the legal ownership and all the access. If I was to make those digital and work like a cryptocurrency, very uncontroversial, but really powerful and transformative. If I was to say, actually, Bitcoin is what banks are going to trade, then suddenly I'm in this world of controversy because of censorship resistance. And Colin, do you think it's that or is it something else? Well, I think there's an interesting point. I'm curious to hear what you, you think on this, Alex. One of Jackson's points was, you know, when people got into this, it was the real Occupy Wall Street kind of movement. Bitcoin was going to destroy the banks and and change everything. And now it's that question that, that Simon just posed is, is it actually the banks that are going to adopt it? Is it uh, custodian solutions like what you're doing? Are those still fitting within the, these original guidelines of destroy the world? Um, or is it kind of a move away from that where people went, wow, I can get rich out of this thing. I don't I don't really care about, you know, destroying the man because in the future I could be the man. <laughs> 
I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. So for me, one of the real eye-openers was back in Shanghai 2015, DEFCON 2, I think it was, with 15 or 16, I can't remember now, one of those two. It was 16, 15 was here. Right, 16 it was. And I was talking to, it was the first time in China for me, I was talking to a lot of uh, Chinese investors, and I was like, you know, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, because basically that's the only way for us to invest in US and UK companies. Um, because otherwise we're just limited to Chinese companies and we want to have global reach in terms of our investment. And this is so damn easy. And I thought, wow. So this isn't necessarily about, you know, I'm sure certain activities happen uh, and they use cryptocurrencies just like they use fiat currencies. But actually, to me, this was about in financial inclusion uh, and a rails that's fit for purpose in the new world. And that, to me, kind of was the bulb, light bulb moment. And that's why I think when we talk about institutional money coming in, what you will probably see is existing asset classes starting to move on the crypto rails. But very quickly, people realize that actually the nationalistic boundaries of those asset classes no longer make sense. So there'll be an adjustment to the way that the instruments are issued with a global outlook baked into it. And at that point, people will become much more comfortable creating new asset classes. We've seen crowdfunding. We've seen Tesla issue, uh, pre-selling cars as a way to fund it. Well, make that transferable and you've got a new asset class. So I think there is time where uh, people are starting to become a bit more comfortable creating new asset classes on new rails. Uh, and as that becomes more and more kind of accepted, then probably as well as KYC and AML coming into Bitcoin and Ether, you will see the shift where it becomes part of the portfolio. Only yesterday, I think there was news that the FINMA in Switzerland issued a statement that banks should have no more than 5% exposure to crypto. Mm -hmm. But that's a monumental step. That's basically giving the go-ahead to have 5% of crypto exposure. Yeah, that's pretty massive. And, and that's crypto as in crypto. As not, in crypto. Not as in an asset that's modeled no, to no, look that's technologically crypto. like crypto. It's, it is that. It's not, a, it's not a mortgage or a bond or, or something modeled to, to be similar. And, and I think that kind of comes to the core of the point here is where there's money to be made, the profit motive is there. Uh, if these things look a lot like commodities that represent the value of securing a network, in other words, um, often the one argument that, Bitcoiners throw out there that you can sort of that very few people really argue with is the price of Bitcoin can probably be tied to the value of securing it as a network, or at least um, that's the utility the Bitcoin itself plays. Then um, that is a commodity that may have some value, and people may want to buy and sell that. And even if they didn't, and it's a tote bag, they still may want to buy and sell that. And if there's a profit motive to be made, it looks no different to the art industry because ultimately it's paint on canvas, right? It, it, it's a thing. So maybe there is something in this new asset class after all and representing things in a technological way. But, you know, is, is Jackson sort of saying what you're saying here that it's don't worry about the institutional money, there'll be new money comes into this? Is it the PayPal argument that was actually they served people that were underserved before? Like PayPal didn't solve for uh, Walmart and for Tesco and for all the big retailers in the world. They sold for mom and pop who wanted to sell a few things on eBay. And, and actually that sort of um, segmenting the market, starting at the bottom, starting in somewhere else, please. Well, they sold online payments. Uh, I mean, it was for Visa and MasterCard to take. They fell asleep and didn't take it. Uh, so they did. 
And I think we're going to see this exactly the same. We're going to see a divergence of asset classes, people experimenting more. And unless the existing institutional money moves quickly into that, I think there will be entrepreneurs who do. Uh, and there will be the new PayPal's and the, the new Ebays who take over that space of financial services. And let's see if it happens. And maybe it will be called Initiative Q. Or XRP, the standard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so coming from the Financial Times of all places, Initiative Q is an elementary pyramid scheme with grandiose ideas. God bless the FT. Um, <laughs> I think it was Jemima that wrote this. Yeah. <laughs> Jemima Kelly, shout out. So the Q token is a centralized private currency issued by an organization calling itself Initiative Q. I mean, it's, Apple Labs. It, it's presently... <laughs> It's presently worthless and not exchangeable, even on Initiative Q's own servers, but they aspire to it being used in their non-existent future payment network. At that point, they intend it to be freely exchangeable with dollars. Initiative Q is invented by serial entrepreneur Saar Wilf, um, the founder of a strangely named payment security um, startup called Fraud Sciences, which I don't know if it's science for how you do fraud or like fraud prevention sciences, but um, which was actually acquired by PayPal in 2008. Hmm, spooky timing. Um, so apparently the way you get in is you need an invite, uh, an invitation to reserve yourself some queue. Uh, and then once you get registered, you can invite up to five other people um, for even more of the non-existent queue. Um, and then uh, the, <laughs> the founder goes, clumping this in with cryptocurrency nonsense completely misses the point. We're doing something way more interesting. Uh, it's a way for the world to come together and solve economic problems that impact every person on the planet. Until now, we're unsolvable due to financial structures created centuries ago. Yeah, I don't get the difference. Did somebody build centralized Bitcoin? Bitcoin? <laughs> what the hell is this thing? It's ridiculous. But you know what? It's been a social media craze. Like, no, every... it's just because we have a guy named Chris working with us that's been shilling this thing. No, no, <laughs> no seriously. I've sort of heard about it before. There's, there's articles all over the place um, of like, hey, that thing you've heard about on Facebook, what is it? Like, it, it actually crossed over to semi-mainstream tech news of, like, people were getting spammed with this thing. They've had over 2 million sign-ups. Everyone wants some Q. I, I don't want any Q. Like, I will happily live my life without ever having Q. Can we try and pretend to take it seriously for a second? Just just okay. go with me okay. on this. What if somebody did create e-money as a big centralized service and said, here's a way to do a massive airdrop through social signups you know you you go get a bunch of people and um you'll have this this q stuff that currently is worthless but actually will represent e-money um we'll use all of these users we've got to go raise some vc money and we'll have vc money uh, vc funded centralized version of a digital asset but hold on is this actually e-money as in uh e-money legislation or is this a new asset class that may be convertible against e-money because that makes a big difference TBD, I'm just hi <laughs> I'm hypothesizing, and it could be either of those. Um, but I'm guessing if you're building a centralized service, why would you build it as an asset class? Like you'd just build it as e-money on your database and, and have it as So somebody class. tried to do this a while ago um, at a supranational level in 1979, and it was called the EQ, and eventually it became known as the Euro. Uh, where they just airdrop this thing into like different countries based off of how much money they had there. That one works because you had countries. This one's centralized. And the question is like, the the reason we were talking about, you know, Bitcoin being 10 years ago, the thing that's interesting is not having that single point of failure. 
are we actually considering we want to give this unknown company from some guy that launched a company called Fraud Sciences um, all of the ability to control our money that we want to move for our daily purchases. And if he does decides we don't want it, I mean, do you really want your money to look like Twitter? Like, that's what we're talking about. I mean, put this way. If it's e-money, then uh, there's someone, somebody called Starbucks that has an e-money license, and they already do this. Uh, and PayPal has an e-money license and so on. So that's nothing new. Can I get coffee with Q? I have no idea. I want to like, no, you see. I thought you were taking it serious. Like, Damn it, I was trying. Um, <laughs> I, I can I can get coffee with euros. That works. Yeah, sort of. Um, you get like you need a lot of euros to get one coffee these days. Um, <laughs> we'll see. What the only thing that I can see is materially interesting about this is that it's caught fire as a social phenomenon and come out and said we're actively not a cryptocurrency uh, and it. it as user acquisition goes for startups, it used to be you get 100 users, you get a community, you get a wait list, you build the scarcity, you get people talking about it, and um, you get everybody excited. This is a different way of getting attention. So there's a there's a marketing lesson in here somewhere, but um, use, use your powers for good, not for evil. Um, people with, with, great, uh, with great cue comes great responsibility. <laughs> Aren't people just going to dump it when it has a market value? If you got the stuff for free, like what's your incentive to keep it? Next story comes from theblockcrypto.com. <laughs> I think you milked that one long enough. <laughs> uh, Coinbase cuts remote customer support staff. So they are the largest exchange in the US. Um, and I think they're still one of, if not the largest, fiat to crypto exchange. Confirmed that they've cut a handful of remote customer support staff. Um, 15 people, which is approximately 3% of the customers, uh, the company's 550 employees, um, have been cut. They include staff in compliance and fraud departments. So they want to centralize their staff in Coinbase offices in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, London, Tokyo, Portland, and Dublin. And some of the remote staff have been offered to relocate. Sounds like they hired people quickly in remote places and they want them in their office. And this has been made into a news story. Anybody else? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So this isn't to do with the volumes being down, do you think? No, I think that that's what people tried to make it out as first. Um, Kraken had a, an office in Halifax, Canada. Yeah. Um, that they cut a bunch of people from apparently a few months ago. And there were a lot of people talking about, oh, is this the same thing? And is that because volumes are down? Uh, it sounds just like Coinbase is growing up and becoming a company that needs to reorg and move people around like every other company. And about a week ago, they got a massive shot in the arm of investment and uh, valuing them at $8 billion. Um, So I think they're fine for cash flow for a little while. For a little while. <laughs> they'll, they'll be fine for cash flow. All right. A reminder, everybody, this episode is brought to you by R3, including Todd McDonald in a shiny red T-shirt. Um, Corda is the only blockchain transaction uh, that removes costly friction in business transactions, uh, enabling institutions to transact directly using smart contracts while ensuring the highest levels of privacy and security. Um, I love the description of Corda being compelling but strange. Um, and at R3, they tend to agree. If you've met uh, Todd McDonald, then I, I can certainly say it is. Um, it's certainly compelling. It, they say it's the only platform designed to allow businesses to transact with each other directly and with finality. And we know how important. You hear that, Alex? We know how important settlement finality is. Um, and talk privacy and within the Java ecosystem. 
Perhaps it is a bit strange, but while firms have tried to apply traditional blockchain technology to businesses, R3 built the black, uh, the blockchain platform suited for every business in every industry. Uh, with 100% interoperability between the open source and enterprise versions, it's unique. Unlock the power of blockchain for your business, head over to r3.com. Uh, for more on the quarter platform or to request a 60-day free trial on quarter enterprise, not 30-day, 60-day. Um, and if you're interested, uh, have a look at our bonus episode from a few weeks ago or have a listen to you could look at the episode too but have a listen to it with mike hearn and richard brown we actually got into some of the details um of their blockchain application firewall um and some of the reasons why they weren't concerned about um the bugs like um heartbleed and meltdown and they give some very technical responses to that so if you want to nerd out that's uh, that's that's worth doing that's your place that's that's that was nerdy we had some people saying that's like blockchain insider on difficult mode um so <laughs> 11 yeah we turned it to 11 for that one yeah thanks alex <laughs> uh, needed to happen you're there for us um we also turned it to 11 recently when we were involved in the launch of metal Woo! um look that up people keep chilling, keep yeah. chilling. <laughs> uh all right the next story comes from medium uh, and a chap called alex Wern. I think that's how you say his name. Pragmatic decentralization, how IDEX will approach industry regulation. So um, he says decentralization exists on a spectrum. And unless your system or application lacks any centralized part, it can be subject to regulation. Uh, Aurora is working to create a fully decentralized financial system, but the path to getting there requires significantly more control and centralization than the end state. Um, in addition to IP blocking, IDEX will be implementing KYC and AML policies in order to comply with sanctions and money laundering laws weird weird uh, messaging on this one it feels like they're trying to thread a needle a little bit they recognize they have to be centralized in the short term so they've got to follow the rules of centralized services but sort of implied is but when we're centralized we don't i think they probably got a call from the sec yeah that's what it looks like <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I wrote a blog post a little while ago talking about how shit decentralized exchanges were because they cost a lot of money because decentralization is not cheap. But he's saying, okay, basically, you're going to keep paying that really high fee for decentralization, but we are also going to have all the parts about centralization that you don't like, like the fact that we can force you to do KYC, AML, we can block your IP if we decided you don't do things the right way. They're still claiming they have censorship resistance. I think maybe they don't know what that means. Um <laughs> Look, it's it's a logical thing that's going to happen. Um, I think what I've noticed time and time again is people building financial market stuff in the crypto space are starting to learn how financial markets work, and they're starting to mimic them. And pretty soon, I can't wait until like people build the CME that exists for cryptocurrencies, and then behind that, the clearinghouse that exists for cryptocurrencies, because you can't just do it on a blockchain. Like That's overlooking what these things actually do. But that uh, comes back to Alex's point earlier, which is in the post-internet world, we're reimagining a lot of financial market infrastructure. I was having a chat with interesting guy Chris Tyra yesterday, and uh, he was sort of saying that definitely the finance people need to get tech more, but the tech people need to get finance more. It's a bit of a generalization uh, because there are day walkers, I think, be between both worlds. Uh, but actually, there's something to be said for that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting kind of when I was back at UBS uh, advising uh, kind of fintech startups and mentoring them, a lot of the arguments would be, you know, the transactions are really expensive and banks kind of take a huge cut and we can process the transaction for a fraction of the cost. And I'm like, but you do understand that there's 97% 
commercial bank money that you have to squeeze in 3% central bank money. Hence, uh, that's the function that drives, uh, for instance, the need for innovation in some cases or need for uh, some sort of uh, netting out uh, and not that, and which means now you have a window where you you got credit risk on the institutions, which means that's why you now have a percentage-based fee on money transfers rather than a flat fee because there is settlement risk. Um, most people then glazed over and went, I don't understand what you're saying, but... Uh, <laughs> But you're, you're wrong. Like you're half wrong. of this room just did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the point is, you need to understand both. Now, what Bitcoin did do was remove the settlement risk, um, which they're now very busily reintroducing with Lightning Networks, which I find humorous. Um, hey, hey, hey. You, you don't say that to them. They'll get very upset. I know. But, but this um, is kind of the key point, isn't it? Like, you see this evolution of... Like it, it's almost like gravity and water. Gravity will find the path of least resistance, and then if you go, no way, I've I've reinvented gravity, and then you start pouring some water from the top of a mountain, you shouldn't be surprised when it follows the same route because it's the path of least resistance. A lot of financial services principles are emergent; they're not necessarily designed. They were there to solve a problem, and the tech you use may change, uh, and maybe wildly more efficient, and maybe even game changing in some parts of the industry, but. You can't just ignore history. You can't just ignore the lessons. But also, you know, as I said, you, you know, a lot of people say, oh, does blockchain mean end of netting? No, it doesn't. Because if you have an asymmetry of one asset that needs to be converted into another asset, netting is a natural process to get that going. But with netting, there comes risk. And with risk means you need to compensate for that. And so there's again, cost. There's but cost. if you can make all of that process wildly more efficient in a you know, post-internet technology world, then you find yourself in a very different place. Um, and so then the question becomes, do we start to see a convergence of the, you know, kind of the thing that started 10 years ago of banks bad, crypto good, and um, banks good into actually there's an answer somewhere in the middle of these two things that looks like the best of both and also neither of them and learns from DevOps and learns from the last 30 years of other technologies as well um, because this doesn't exist in a vacuum. No, I agree. I mean, look, just looking at the whole question of uh, some people call it crypto custody. I don't call it like that. I call it key safeguarding because I don't actually custody assets. I protect people's keys. Um, and there's a fundamental difference to that because uh, if you look at Chapter 6 of FCA, which talks about custody, it talks about reconciliation because the idea is the custodian keeps records. I don't. Uh, so I don't need to reconcile and so on. So you can start to see emerging patterns where some things look a bit like old world, but actually you dig deeper and then completely different. And the set of challenges we need to solve for the kind of digital asset space. That, is that reconciliation different. point is worth kind of expanding on a little bit because Colin, you always describe custody as being clean title. In other words, knowing the problem. It's a lot of things. Clean title is one of the important things that a custodian promises is say, nobody else owns this particular asset. Yeah. You are the owner of it. With doing what you're doing around safeguarding of keys, you're sort of doing that, but you're also sort of not because you're sort of guaranteeing that this is the owner, but you're holding it on their behalf. But you're not guaranteeing that it's the owner. You're just saying, I will hold it for you. See, the thing is, I'm not even... or Most people who do what I'm trying to do right now don't hold the asset at all. There's clear legal hold yeah. by the beneficiary of the asset class. 
um, think of it as almost like a password manager, yeah? If you use a password manager to uh, log into another website, does that webs- uh, the password manager have legal hold of your uh, accounts and your uh, kind of uh, websites? No, it doesn't. All we're doing is moving from uh, straightforward secret keys, which are passwords, to private public keys. So you don't uh, kind of send the password. You simply sign a transaction. It's the blurring um, of ownership versus access. If you looked at old uh, words, uh, kind of Finland was one of the first uh, to introduce a securities depository with di- direct ownership. Mm. And people started referring to account operator, meaning that there's no legal hold by the custodian. None of the assets on the balance sheet. Uh, therefore, there's no um, balance sheet risk or credit risk against the custodian. But somebody has to help out with corporate actions. Um, for instance, kind of, you know, maturity payment, coupon payments, whatever it is. And I think this is starting to look a little bit closer to the point where somebody has to look after your keys if you choose to do that. But that's a very different space to actually uh, having legal hold of our assets. I think it's going to be an interesting one to follow this as it emerges. There's going to be a lot more elements to uh, kind of this whole um, decentralization debate and what tech stack uh, needs to be the future of financial services, but also uh, how much are financial services the future of Web3 and, and kind of the, the, the next generations of the internet. So there's this couple of lenses and ways of looking at it. And whilst we're speaking... About all things Web3 and financial services, um, story comes from Bloomberg. Uh, how much of ICOs raised in 2018? Depends who you ask, apparently. So the uh, lack of rules and transparency leaves the issuance amount actually quite murky. Um, there are more digital tokens now being issued through direct sales than there are in actual ICOs. So it's actually kind of hard to ascertain the amount of funds an issuer claims it raised when no one's submitted any regulated filings or even reveal their identities in some cases. Consider the Venezuelan Petro. Um, In March, President Nicolas Maduro said it's garnered $5 billion in offers. In April, he said the sale raised $3.3 billion. Uh, The token's website says $735 million, um, the figure cited by CoinSchedule and ICO Rating. So wouldn't uh, it be great if we had some kind of like massive record that was immutable that we could see all these transactions coming in so that we could actually figure out how much they had raised that'd be great wouldn't it and what's that we'd call this thing i don't know (laughs) but i think i think it definitely needs some blocks uh yeah but you need some way of putting them together could you chain them wow mind blown (laughs) mind blown it's kind of funny though like we're we're trying to raise money in this new format and like i'm pretty sure that if you go like crowdfunding they don't screw up how much money you've raised you know how much money is in the bank account afterwards is this blur again between um accountability responsibility um disclosures transparency and and, and very important things that but they were supposed to fix this <laughs> this is why they're here but, but this is kind of my challenge with having a software standard that allows you to issue tokens really easily um that doesn't uh, finish the thought like having here's the code snippet you need is not the same as here's the operating model and the product features and the compliance and due diligence and people tried to build platforms that were end-to-end but actually they only solved a piece of the puzzle i think it needed to be brought back down like the elc20 the 721 all those things that there are breakthroughs in terms of simplicity but actually, there was so much more work that could be done on those to really drive those forward as a standard. And I know others are looking at that. 
But but I think that's a symptom of the original hypothesis that code is law and therefore you don't need anything else. Mm. Um, and some people still subscribe to that and that's great. But majority of us live within a, a kind of jurisdiction that doesn't recognize that and, and enforces statutory laws. The problem with uh, reality is it's a lot more messy than uh, than binary. Exactly that. And I think we, we're seeing this kind of convergence slowly merging more and more ICO issuance platforms that bridge the legal gap. Um, uh, kind of, uh, there's kind of also projects like, you know, the idea of the recording contract that ties the legal contract to, uh, for instance, the, uh, the smart contracts. There's now platforms like Open Law. Uh, that uh, close.io and all those good there's a whole bunch of really cool projects out there uh, if you're feeling nerdy and you're on your phone and you're listening to this go google the ricardian contract go google clause.io go google um open law and that's those are actually really interesting developments and there are many others like them um that, that aren't coming to the top of my mind but these projects are designed to try and take software and make it compatible with legal frameworks in a standards format so that you can have more or less a template that software could drive and that's really cool but that's also going to be hard work and it's going to take it is yeah but i think that's what that closes the gap between the reality and and the software and i think we're seeing that kind of coming to fruition i think yeah. All right, next story from bravenewcoin.com. Bitcoin Cash has a hard fork set for November the 15th. Uh, after the decision to implement a pre-consensus protocol in a long-scheduled software upgrade to Bitcoin Cash on November 15th, its community is split <laughs> in a hard fork that will see the digital currency split into two separate chains that should occur on that debate. So is it Bitcoin Cash Classic now? And- I, I think we should just go back last year when we like did the whole Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash split and just like replay that. <laughs> you, you were there at Deconomy. Uh, who was talking about killing babies if uh, you Roger didn't use Beer. it? That's it. I, I still remember that as being the most amazing panel I, I witnessed. So I, I wonder which side of the split will babies be Whichever on side Roger is on is definitely going to be the baby saving side. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Wow. Um there's uh... Bitcoin baby. <laughs> it's I mean it's interesting that like I'm not overly surprised I must say that um Craig Craig is uh Craig Wright is trying to claim something he didn't create as his own and uh has decided that he knows the best way forward for Bitcoin Cash. For Bitcoin Cash. So there's two camps. There's um Bitcoin Satoshi's vision. BSV, I think, is what we're going with now. Um, And Bitcoin client ABC, which is popular people's front of Judea and the Judean people's front of (laughs) Judea. That's a new way to go, yeah. Um, If you haven't seen Monty Python, uh, The Life of Brian, go watch it. That will make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, so they want to put in the ABC client, wants to put in new things. Um, Craig Wright thinks that that's wrong because he's Craig Wright and knows better than everybody else. Because he is Satoshi Nakamoto, of course. Um, and he created all this in the beginning, in 2008, 10 years ago. So he wants to fork again. Was that before Oxygen or after Oxygen? Well, he was on some kind of panel not too long ago, and he said like um, he his techno- technology ability was set up a wireless router and uh, like plug a computer into it. And then like a few years later, he decided that he was also the creator of Bitcoin. He's an interesting guy. 
Stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, one from thenextweb.com. Uh, apparently somebody used TI songs to describe the lawsuit against his failed cryptocurrency. Uh, you should go check this one out. Thenextweb.com, TI songs, lawsuit, cryptocurrency. Google that. Watch it. You're welcome. Um, Coindesk.com, New York Awards, uh, the first ever bit license to a Bitcoin ATM company. Okay, then. Um, and Coindesk.com, Binance signs up 40,000, is that? Or is that 400,000? 40, the are in the wrong place. They signed up a lot of people. <laughs> in the first week in Uganda. Um, so... Uh, you you be okay. Well, look, if Initiative Q can get two million people, why can't Binance? And we how many zeros we lose here? Why can't Binance get forty thousand in Uganda? Time for tweet of the week. Tweet 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. Uh, this tweet comes from Zach Vol. Um, not like the uh, small rodent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe actually. <laughs> You saw this. Uh, we need more small rodents on this show. Uh, Preston, where are you? <laughs> uh, he, did, he talks about it. Uh, so Zach Vol uh, talks about a quick comparison. I can't get small rodents out of my head now. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the orcas. Yeah, no, don't bring up orcas. Uh, we'll have a whale of a good time. <laughs> Zach Vol uh, does a quick comparison of Bitcoin and orcas. No, uh, <laughs> I really have to concentrate here, people. Zach Vol actually does a quick comparison of Bitcoin and fiat ATMs. So ATMs worldwide, uh, and since 2013, there's been 3 million to about 4 million uh, fiat ATMs um, on the kind of left-hand chart scale. On the right-hand chart scale, between 2013, we can see a J-curve of Bitcoin ATMs from zero to 4,000. Win moon. <sighs> I mean, that's a J-curve. I mean, when you completely change the left and right axis to prove your point. <laughs> I think Larry Cermak's response is the best. Chart murder. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that is uh, a chart that got absolutely savaged by an orca and a rodent all in one. <laughs> and, and whatever their offspring might look like. <laughs> wow, a vol orca offspring. <laughs> I think it'd look a lot like that chart. <laughs> Give it to me, baby. <laughs> Uh, alrighty, that sums up our show. Um, just to remind you all, um, this podcast and all of its uh, lols are made to you by 11FS. We are, in fact, um, a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. And in case you missed it, uh, we just launched uh, Metal.co.uk in partnership with RBS and uh, a couple of other great, great folks. Uh, do check out Metal.co.uk to learn more about the types of things that you can get if you're a small business in the UK. Um, and if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, why not subscribe? The subscribe button's right there. Uh, you can hear Colin G. Platt and his orca shilling um, and all kinds of goodness. And uh, if you're already subscribed, why don't you throw us a review? Um, well, you might not want to give us five stars because of Colin G. Platt, but do it anyway. Give us five uh, stars because of Alex Batlin. 11 stars. Give us 11 stars. <laughs> <laughs> 11 million stars. Uh, Colin, where can people find out more about you? Uh, pitch token. <laughs> also at Colin G. Platt on Twitter. PTK, represent. Uh, Alex Batlin. Uh, trustology.io. Trustology.io. He's the man with the private keys. <laughs> or as I described to my uh, children what I do, who are perpetually perplexed about what I do. I'm perpetually the perplexed. as the autobiography title. There you go, yeah. <laughs> um, I describe myself as the keeper of secrets. 
God, it does every way you describe yourself a Bond villain. <laughs> that or Harry Potter. Yeah. I went into his office a few weeks ago and like on their, their little like coffee table when you walk in, it, they just had magazines with guns like all over the place. <laughs> Preston would have absolutely loved the place. And a great view like over the Thames. Good offices. A big thanks to our amazing production team here at 11FS, uh, our producers, <laughs> Petra Marisha, uh, to Michael Bailey, our editor, and everybody else. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.